question. If you could go anywhere in the world with any person on Earth, like someone you know, though. No, this is just, this is just, you just get to go on vacation anywhere for like a couple days. Now, talk amongst yourselves. Turn to the person next to you and say, here's where I'd go and here's who I would want to come with me. Just go ahead, do that, you know. Just have some fun with it. Just go ahead, talk amongst yourself. Band, you guys have to do this too, just because you're in college. Anybody wanna anybody wanna share? Anybody willing to stand up and share what they said? Or how about this? Does anyone want to share what the other person told them? Uh, Eric, you? Well who told you? What did Jeff say? Jeff! Jeff works at Chick-fil-A, by the way. He gives me chicken on Thursday night. No, somebody. I, no, Jeff works at Chick-fil-A. Yeah. All right, who's willing to share? Who's willing to share? Max, what about you? What would you do? Who? Oh, Evan. No, but what about you? Okay, so you would take these three guys to China. Gotcha. That's a good, that'd be a good place to go. I love the food. You can get, like, massive meal for 10 bucks. Yeah, Jordan, what about you? Jeff revokes his... Just tell me what he said. He'll be fine with it. Ooh, Jeff. All right. I'm, should I say what I think it is? <laughs> that would be hilarious. That would be so funny. I'm not going to do that to him. I like embarrassing people, but not ruining people. Um, all right. who? Else? Come on, somebody else. Give me something. Just one other one, at least. Zach, what about... What did Candace say? You don't want to say? Would, would she take you to the Bahamas? <laughs> oh, 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 okay. Come on, does anybody just, this is not that hard of a question. Okay. Really, you out of all the people, you would take Zach to Australia. That's pretty cute. How precious. Look at some kangaroos and, okay. Ben, what about you, bro? Yeah, where would you go and who would you take? Siberia. Okay. All right. Jordan would go with with Aslan to Narnia. Siberia. All righty. Well, I think I would go to, you know, I mean, I could go a lot of different places, but the one on my mind right now, I would love to go to Alaska. You know, like, it's like frontier that hasn't totally been, you know. Yeah, you see, I don't know if polar bears are there, but big grizzly bears and mountains. And right now, I would probably take my brother just because we, we have a good time. And, yeah, we have a good time together. We love to hang out, and we, like, think the same thing and everything. 
But the reason I asked the question is because I think it had a lot to do with what I wanted to talk to you about tonight. I think, this is my assumption, this is just a guess, an opinion, a strong opinion, that if you were to really answer that question honestly, if you were really to think about that and answer that question honestly, that the type of person you would want to bring, I can strongly guess, would be someone who generally accepts you as a person, who knows a lot about you, and accepts you for who you are. I think people really care about that. People care about having friendships and relationships where there's some other person who knows a lot about them, and they accept them. They like them. They enjoy their, their company. And I would bet that if you really answer that question honestly, that would be true of whatever person you take. And that's also why I think having, I'll just put it right out there, well, having a relationship with God, like what CJ talked about, the reason we're here, is such an important thing. Because a relationship with God, essentially, is that. This is a person who doesn't just know a lot about you. He knows everything about you. And when he sees you, if you are his child and you've been washed in the blood of his son through believing in his son, when he sees you, he sees you as precious. He sees you and he loves you. He sees you and he accepts you, and he will never reject you. And in that relationship is the meaning and the purpose and what we all want in life, what every human being is made to experience. So I wanted to talk about that. And uh, there's a verse I wanted to share with you to kind of get us started out. I, I read, I've been reading through the Psalms lately. I don't know if you've read that book in the Bible before, but it's a really cool book. And there's this verse that has just really captured me lately. I've been thinking a lot about it. And it basically says this, this guy, I don't think it's David, it's someone else, because different people have written, written stuff in this book. And this is what he says. It's kind of crazy. He says, better is one day in the presence of the Lord than a thousand anywhere else. Think about what he's saying. He is saying that it's better to spend one day in the presence of God than a thousand days anywhere else. Now think about what he's saying. For him to say that, he is saying essentially, like, imagine that place that you would go, that one place that you, if you could go anywhere in the world. Now we're talking about, you could say, like, a ski trip somewhere forever. You could say, you know, Alaska or Siberia or some resort, whatever you could come up with. This guy is saying that you could spend a thousand days in a place like that, and it would not compare with one day spent, let's say, in a lesser place, in the presence of God. Now, what must have happened to this guy for him to be able to say that? What kind of experience must he have had with God for him to be able to say, better is one day in the presence of God a thousand anywhere else. That's what I'm going to try to talk to you about today. And the avenue through which I'm going to try to talk to you about this is through the whole concept of what you can call solitude. Now, solitude essentially is three things. And the reason we're going to talk about solitude is because in solitude, that's where I think a great place is where you can experience this presence with the Lord, experiencing God relationship. And so we're going to talk about solitude. And solitude, I think, 
you know, there's a lot of different ways it could be explained. The way I want to explain it to you tonight is through three rules. I think there's three rules to solitude. Now, when I say rule, the Latin word for rule actually comes from the same word as terrace. You guys know what a terrace is? It's like a wooden grid, you know, that holds up vines. When you, when you talk about a rule, what a rule is essentially is it's something that holds up vines to produce fruit. So I'm not here to lay a bunch of rules on you. I'm here to give you some things to help uplift the fruit to bear in your life and for you to experience solitude. So the three rules are pretty simple. One, the first one is secret. The second one is silence. And the third one is centering. And you break that up and we'll put a little parenthesis next to it. It's entering into the presence of God, centering in on God. Okay, I think if you can understand those three things, secret, silence, centering, you will have access to the most intense experience in the face of the earth. The coolest thing that you can ever experience through those three rules, you have access to. Okay, so here we go. The first one, secret. All right. In Matthew chapter 6, I've been studying this with a few of my Bible studies this week. So they probably know a little bit of what I'm about to say. Um, but the word, in Matthew chapter 6, um, Jesus is talking to a bunch of people. And he basically says a few different times that when you pray, when you fast, or when you give to the poor, do it in secret. When he talks about prayer specifically, he says, go into a room, shut the door, and be in secret. And in the secret, the Lord will reward you. Now, is that saying that those can never be done in public? I don't think so. I don't think that he's saying that. But there is something about being in the secret place, being secret, being away from everybody else, withdrawing from the crowd, being alone with God. There's something in there. Now, when you look through, when you look through the story of the Bible, you know what one of the outstanding observations you can make is, is that almost all of the key characters, almost every single one of them, not all of them, but most of them, the key characters in the Bible, the life-altering experience of their life, that not only changed the course of their life, but everybody who was following them, like either the whole nation of Israel or whatever people they were leading. The life-altering experience of their life, guess, was one, one of the pieces of the puzzle. They were alone with God. Okay? You can add a lot of people to this list. You got Abraham. You got Noah before him. You got Jacob. You got Moses. All different amazing stories with these guys. You have, and I don't have them written down, but there's a lot of them. Almost all the prophets. Okay, you got Jonah. You could put him in there. Hannah. Samuel. David, the list goes on and on and on. Almost all these guys, the major life-altering experience of their life happened when they were alone with God. When you look at the life of Jesus, you know how he began his ministry? Alone. He got alone. He got away from the people, and he got alone with God. When he ended his ministry, not that his ministry's ended, it's still going, before he went to the cross, he had an experience with God 
alone. The one reference that it uses when you when you describe, or the one word, or the one experience that is referenced to Jesus' life with the word often, like it says Jesus did this often, the only time it says Jesus did something often was in reference to withdrawing from the crowds and being alone with God. I'm going to tell you this. If Jesus needed to be alone with God, what in the world was our, is our need to be alone with God? Okay? Not only Jesus, but then you look at like uh, even leaders throughout church history, after Jesus and after the apostles and stuff like that. You know, most of the people in this room have become Christians through a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. I became a Christian through this ministry. The conception of this ministry was given to a man named Bill Bright when? When he was in a library alone. Pretty interesting. When you look in church history, there is this, uh, the early church people, like the first guys, they had this practice. It was called the daily office. Now the word office comes from this word opus and the word opus or office means to work and the reason they called this practice the daily office is because they viewed it as their daily job their daily work that when they started their day their primary work as a human being was to engage in this practice it was to engage in doing this practice you know what the practice was it's kind of like what we talk about when we say, maybe you've heard the term quiet time or devotional, except it was different. When they would describe it, it isn't like they would they were doing something. It wasn't like they were like reading something or even um, trying to do something. It was more about them being with somebody. And they would do it like several times throughout the day. And their whole schedule would revolve around their work, because this is their primary job. There's these uh, these guys called the Trapist Monks, and they're in Massachusetts, and to this day, they still practice this whole daily office thing. And they do it seven times a day. And this is their job. This is their work. This is what they do in life, is they do this daily office thing. And it basically, it'll last from 15 to 30 minutes. They do it seven times a day. And they just be with God. They get alone. They get quiet. And they just be with him. It's kind of weird. Now, for us, it's almost like bizarre to think that we could have something that is set into our schedule that everything else revolves around. I mean, with me, I've always grown up in the way that I look at being with God. It's kind of like, well, I have my schedule, okay? And whenever I can fit God into my schedule, then maybe we'll fit it in and we'll do it. But it's a whole different way of looking at things. It's kind of looking at God for who he is, God. And saying, I'm going to make the first thing in my day, the first priority, setting into my schedule during the day and time where I will be with you. And everything else will revolve around that. And if other things fall out, that's okay. I'm okay with it. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know, a little illustration. I've noticed there's two different kinds of um, married men. There's certain married men that they'll, all married men will talk about their wife in some degree. Okay. There's some married men who will tell you more than you want to know 
about the intimate experiences that he has with his wife. Okay? Then there's other men who will never say anything about it. They will never tell you about the intimate experiences that they have with the wife. And you know what that kind of does? The feel that you get from the guys who like openly talk about it, it kind of cheapens it. It's kind of like when they bring that stuff out of the secret place, out of the intimate place, it becomes a little cheap. It becomes less valued, valuable. When the guys, when the guys talk about it, but then you get the sense that these guys have this, like there's this certain secret thing that they have with their wife that you would never know about. You would never get let into this place. You know what that communicates about that place? That it's this valuable, awesome thing. It's so sacred, so intimate, so precious to them that they would just never want you to know about. It. And I want to submit to you that when you read through some of these these figures in church history talk to people who really care deeply about meeting with God, that there is an experience to be had with them that is so precious and so awesome. It's almost like this sacred, holy thing. Kind of weird and mysterious, but I totally believe it's true. I think that he wants you to have that. Alright, so first, secret. Second, it's silent. Silence. Now, a couple interesting little facts. The average group can only experience 15 seconds of silence. Most groups, after 15 seconds, it gets... There's this guy named Bernie Krause. I don't know if you've heard of Bernie Krause. But he uh, records nature sounds for TV. In 1968, to get one hour of silence, you know how much recording time he had to have? 15 hours, like in America, to get one hour of sheer silence, he had to have a total of 15 hours. Guess how much he has to have today? He has to get 2,000 hours of recording time to get one total hour of silence. 183 million people are supposedly exposed to noise levels excessive that are called excessive. <laughs> Um, by the, I tried to abbreviate it and I just read it straight without telling that right. By the Environmental Protection Agency. Now this silence thing, I'm going to tell you. I mean, I live in this world just like you do. This is a hard thing to get. I mean, we have cell phones, we have, you know, TVs. I mean, you could literally arrange your life to where you never are silent or in silence for the rest of your life. You could pull that off. Okay, with iPods, whatever all the different stuff we got going on. You have the opportunity to be surrounded by noise so that you never have to think like deeply. You never have to be alone. You can always be surrounded by something. Interesting thing Jeff said one time. I don't know what we were talking about. He was saying about how he was in New York City and he was walking down the street and it was like everybody had an iPod in. And he said something. I don't know how he brought it up, but his dad said, why do you think all these people are totally screwing this up? Why do you think all these? He said, "Why do everyone have an iPod?" Maybe you remember it. And his dad, something like, "People are lonely." When he said that, I thought, "Yeah, it's so true." It's like we're lonely people, and there's something about being quiet that just kind of makes us. We don't want to be alone. I want to tell you a story about silence. It's from the Old Testament. It's an interesting story. It's from um, the book First Kings. It's about this guy named Elijah. 
And Elijah was this kind of rough and tumble prophet. He was kind of like, kind of one of these loud, tough, you know, talk trash kind of guys. And um, the time when he comes into the picture, the nation of Israel was going through one of the worst times that had ever been. Now, the nation of Israel had kings, and the current king at this time period was this guy named Ahab. And the nation of Israel primarily had, you know, one religion, and it was to worship God, the same God we worship, Yahweh. And um, But every once in a while, because they lived on the border of so many other nations that had all these polytheistic societies where all these other nations had different gods, every once in a while, you know, some idol worship would creep in and people would start worshiping another god. But for the most part, the nation of Israel stayed pretty true to this god. Well, Ahab set up this political alliance with a neighboring country where he married the daughter of a priest king from another country, which was forbidden by God's law or whatever. And this girl's name was Jezebel. So he married this girl named Jezebel. So they're now married. She's not an Israelite. She's actually from this other country, and she's a Sidonian. And she worships this god called Baal. Now, the worship of Baal is some pretty wild stuff. It involves sacrificing humans. It involves some really wild, crazy things. So he brings this woman into this country. And this woman was one of those, like, can-do women. You know, she's, like, going to take over. She's going to put the pants on the family until they have to sit down. She's going to run the show. And she eventually makes all of Israel, the nation, the national religion, the worship of Baal. So this was, like, one of the all-time lows for the nation of Israel. Because all of a sudden now, the national religion is no longer, you know, worshiping Yahweh. It's now worshiping Baal. So we're talking about setting up Baal bookstores. We're talking about setting up Baal seminaries, you know. you got all the Baal prophets that come in and start setting up shop, doing things. So God is like, okay, this is not good. I'm going to do something to kind of shake things up. So he brings in this guy, Elijah. Now, Elijah brought two things to the table. One, he basically prayed and asked the Lord to, to bring a drought over the land. And so there was now a drought. So one of the ways that God began to shake the people up in Israel is to stop the rain. No more rain. Another thing that he did was the really cool part. He basically set up a showdown between Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal. So we're talking about all these evil prophets going to have a showdown with Elijah, kind of like a battle, kind of like in the octagon, UFC, Elijah versus the Baal prophets. Of course, it's not really a fight. The way the showdown was going to work was, is that they both set up an altar, okay? So they set up an altar of stone and wood, and they're going to put some, like, cows on it and stuff like that, and cut them up, and then they're basically going to say, whichever god sends fire down upon the altar wins. So the prophets of Baal start going first. I want you to picture thousands of Israelites, like thousands of people, like a football stadium, maybe bigger than that. That many people watching this thing. So you got these prophets of Baal, and they start doing their chants and all their little cries, and they're kind of, you know, wishing on the fire to come down. They're talking to Baal, and nothing's happening. And Elijah actually starts talking trash to him. He starts saying, where's your God? Where's Baal? You know, he's, he actually says, what's he doing, taking a dump? You know, like he's this crazy guy. And the prophets of Baal are getting mad. They're getting frustrated. So they pull out knives, and they start cutting themselves. They're just like, oh, no, no, you know, doing these wild chants. And then eventually Elijah's like, all right, it's my turn. So he, despite them, kind of mock him. He 
he takes these big buckets of water and he starts dumping water on the altars. You like see this? I don't even put water on this. Right? So he starts putting water on it. And then he says this really cool prayer. He's like, Lord, God of Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, and whatever. Um, and he says, send fire down on this altar and do it in such a way that when people see it, they know that you are the only God. So he prays his prayer. And then all of a sudden, I would love, I mean, how cool would it have been to be there? Like you see the sky begin to rip open. And out of the sky, fire, like a big bucket of fire, like a massive stadium of fire, begins to pour out of the sky. Okay, and falls. This really happened. Like we believe this actually really happened. Okay? And fire like began to pour down. And then it came down and it consumed this altar. And everybody in this place is looking at this and they're just like, oh my goodness. The whole crowd just falls down on their faces. And they start saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he, he is God. And the prophets are freaking out. And Elijah says, all right, gather the prophets. We're going to kill them all. So he takes them and he kills them. He gets rid of them. Pretty wild. Now check this out. Then a little thing happens where he prays, the rain comes back. The interesting thing about this, when you read this story, you think to yourself, man, how awesome is that? Like Elijah is on the top of his game. This guy just saw what questionably could have been called the greatest ministry success in the history of Israel. We're talking about a seriously awesome event. And you know what he does? He hears that Jezebel says that he should be killed. And he gets scared. And he runs away. He runs away. He hides off by himself. And he gets under this broom tree and he's depressed. He's lonely. He's sad. He basically says, God, just kill me. I'm just sick of this. I'm so tired of this. I just want to die. And I'm just like, I read that. It's like, what is going on? Like, why is it that he just had this awesome success, okay? He just, like, was at the top of his game. He won the Super Bowl, you know, his boy. He reached the top. He reached the pinnacle. He got what he wanted. Like, if you were to say, if I were to ask you, hey, what's the one thing you want in life? This is the one thing Elijah probably would have said. For some reason, he's depressed. He's wanting to die. He's wanting to give up. And it's kind of like, well, what happened? I think the answer to the confusion of this story is in the reply that God gives to him. You know what God does to him? He basically takes him up to this mountain. And he puts him on the, in, this, in the cleft of this mountain. And Elijah's sitting there. The Lord says him to sit up. He tells him to sit out there because he wants to say something to him. And it says that the Lord began to pass by. And when God began to pass by, there was this wind that blew through the mountain. It was this intense, crazy wind that blew through the mountain, and it shook the mountain so much that rocks started falling out of the mountain. Then it says this interesting thing. It says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then the next thing that happens, it says an earthquake shook. Boom! You know, an earthquake. And it shook the mountain. And then you know what it says? It's a really interesting thing. It says, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then it says a fire blew by. This fire comes and boom! A huge explosion blows up right there in front of the mountain. 
And then it says, but the Lord was not in the fire. You're kind of like, okay, he's not in the wind, he's not in the earthquake, he's not in the fire, what's going on? And then it says there was this sheer silence. Guess what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that the Lord was not in the silence. Why it doesn't say he wasn't in the silence? Because it was in the silence. He was in the silence. Isn't that so interesting? This is my. This is what I want to submit to you: is the um, the meaning of what is coming out of this text that Elijah had put his value, his investment, his success, his significance, all up in the what God could do for him, all up in these great works that he could perform for God, all up in this big performance kind of stuff. And if I could just see this happen or have this happen or these circumstances arrange around my life, then I will have what I want. And the Lord was saying, I am not in the fire. I am not in the earthquake. I'm not in all these big things. I think they're great, and I'll do them, and they're awesome. I'll use them in your life and in people's lives to draw people to me. But what you want is me, just me, in the silence. Some of the most depressing points of my life are when I get what I want. When I get what I want sometimes, those are about some of my lowest points. I look at the world and see something that I think I want. I get it. Sometimes. And it's like, it's not there. It's not what I thought I wanted. Because God is what I want. He is found in silence. He's found in the secret. Thirdly, he's found in the center. Here's the last point. Center. Moving into the presence of God. Have you ever noticed how difficult this is? How difficult it is? I know that there's, it's okay, but probably few of you have actually tried this, and that's okay. You know, I, I really never even tried this in history. Like, I, I've read the Bible a lot, and i prayed a lot, but actually just getting alone being silent, trying to like experience God in this place. I never really knew what that was all about. I never tried it. I'm not saying that that was But when you try it, it's very difficult. Um, I think most people's response to why it's difficult is they think about the externals. Like, oh yeah, well it's difficult. We've got all these boys. You know, we're so busy. We've got all these things going on. Well, it's kind of like, well, why are we so busy? Why are all these things going on? I mean, we're the ones who are kind of running this place. And I think it's a lot more than just the externals, why it's so difficult to find this. I think the real reason it's difficult is because what's going on in our heart. There's something in us that's resisting going there. There's something in us that doesn't want to go there. We don't want to risk it. We don't want to expose ourselves to this guy. So we make things up kind of like, oh, I don't really think he's there, or... Oh, I can't trust the Bible. You know, those, those are legitimate reasons to have questions to deal with. I think ultimately it comes down to want to risk being alone because you don't know what it's going to I think two primary reasons that it's difficult is one, he's unpredictable. He is unpredictable. God is not someone you can control. 
He's not someone you can predict. He will do what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants to do it. And you could get alone and do all these things, be in your room and turn out off everything and cut yourself off and, and be quiet. And, and nothing might happen because you can't just like, okay, if I do these things, then all of a sudden God's going to show himself. I cannot predict what he's going to do. There's times when I have all these scenarios set up and nothing happens. I just sit there and I'm not going Other times, it's best experience to have in Another thing is this verse, Psalm 4610. I think this gives us an insight into it. I don't know if we can put that up here. Hope we can. Alright, there it is. It's hard to see. Look at what this says. Be still and know that I am God. Okay. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now what this is, when you look at this verse in Psalms, Psalms is a poetical book, it's made of poems. Um, there's different ways of categorizing different Psalms. This is what you call a tricolon, which is a fancy way of saying it has three lines. Okay? And when you have three lines that have a command that are followed by promises, this one has two promises that follow it that are parallel, the promises are insights into how you experience and how you obey the command. So what's the command? Be still and know that I am God. This is a command. Be still. That's easy. Be still. And know. Now this word know is not necessarily knowing about something. There's a kind of knowledge where you can know about math. You can know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. There's another knowledge in the Bible, which is this one. That it's talking about knowing, like experiencing. You got to really know the person. It's like I can know about Michael Jordan. You know, I can know facts about him, but then I can know him. I can have a relationship with him where I knock on the door and I want to come in at the party, and he says, "Yeah, I know you. Come on in." This is the kind of know that that's talking about. Be still and experience that I am God, which is what we've been talking about today. And how do you do that? How does that end up happening? believing that he will be exalted among the nations and that he will be exalted in the earth. What does that have to do with it? This is saying that one day on earth, God will be exalted among all nations. All nations one day will exalt God. You might say, man, that we're a long ways from that. How is that ever going to happen? He's saying that it's going to happen and we believe that it actually will happen. Now, what must you also believe about God to know this is true? What's an indirect thing you would have to believe about God to know that he could pull this off? Well, one simply would be that he's in control of everything. That he is in control of this universe. He is in control of the planets in their orbit. He is in control of all the nations, of what they're doing. He is in control of the leaders of the nations. He's in control of the people of the nations. He's in control of your life. He has your life under control. Do you really believe that God doesn't need you? That you could just kind of stop doing all this stuff and that this world would be okay without you? That you could actually stop trying and that God would still have your life under control? That he would still be in control? Anyway, what are you saying? Are you saying I'm trying to You're saying if I actually just kind of gave up, that all of a sudden, that my life would still work out for itself. 
mean, yeah, there is a part where you have to be a part of this thing. But ultimately, God already knows what's going to happen with your life. And yet, you can actually have, like, times in your life where you stop. And you can step back and say, you know what? I don't have to be busy all the time. I actually going to stop and be with God. And my life is going to be okay. The world will be all right without me. You can actually stop for a long time. There's these uh, certain group called the Navigators. They're like, kind of like missionaries. And every seven years, these guys will take one year off where they won't do anything. They'll just live. Like eat, sleep, drink, live. But guess what? It's okay. The world is all right without them. Um, now, if I were to be real personal with you, share with you why, how this stuff is really hard for me, here's what I would tell you. One of the things that makes this really hard for me is I don't want to give up control of my life. I don't want to let go of control. I want to control everything. I want to be in control of my schedule. I want to be in control of the people around me. I want to control because when I'm in control, then I know what's going to happen. And then I know how people are going to interact around me, and it's kind of like it's safe. I was on a date one time. Oh, I know. Was, I know. It was crazy. Can you believe it? I know it's hard to believe. And one thing about this date is I talked maybe 2% of the time. Okay, I'm not criticizing the girl. This is just what happened. You know, I pick her up. She gets in the car. Not, 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 just starts talking. But when she's still talking, we get out of the car. We go and sit down in the restaurant. She's still talking. She talks the whole time. I, I got a few words in. Maybe like 20 little funny thing. One of the things I said was this. As she's talking, she's talking. She started talking about like uh, how she didn't. She like kids. So it kind of like caught me off guard. And I got my attention. Didn't really pay attention. And I was like, oh, maybe this is a way a place I can interject. And she said, um, yeah, she said, I don't like kids. I don't want to have kids. I was like, wait, wait. Did you say you don't have kids? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, well, do you want to get married? And she's like. Well, not to me. I just want to get married in general. And she was like, well, yeah, of course. And I was like, well, most guys want to have kids. This is the point I was already getting impatient with her, so I was ready to start getting that punchy. And I was like, most most guys want to have kids, you know. She's like, yeah, well. I was like, well, what if you get married to a guy who wants to have kids? What do you want to do? She was like, well, I, I, you know, I guess, you know, I mean, the one who has the kids. Oh, so you're still going to have to learn that whole submission. <laughs> oh, you should have seen her face. It was hilarious. Oh, my gosh. But <laughs> now, <laughs> I told her I was kidding and everything, and she laughed. I was fine. But you know, was my, the interesting thing about that interaction is I left, I left that interaction with her thinking, you know, sometimes I do that same thing. Sometimes, like, I try to control a conversation. And I like to talk the whole time, but even when I'm not talking, I'm asking the questions, and I like to be in control. Why is it that we like to be in control of other people? And I thought to myself, well, usually it's like, if I'm with a person, and I'm just in their presence, and I'm not now controlling the situation, you know what happens? I'm now vulnerable. I am vulnerable to this other person. And that can be kind of scary. If you don't know what the person's going to do, they can ask any question. I mean, you're sitting right there. They can ask you something. They can say something to you. I mean, it's kind of like when you're in with, with somebody, 
and you're just there and you're being with them, that that's kind of a, a vulnerable thing to be in. I mean, how many times do you just go be with people you don't know and just sit there? I mean, it doesn't happen. There's some there's certain levels of getting to know someone before you would put yourself in that position, especially if they're the opposite sex. We're talking about being alone with God. Okay? He has the right and the power to like convict us of sin, to like show us that there could be something in our life that's wrong. And that's kind of scary. It's like who wants to be in that kind of situation? He could, like, command you to do something. He could give you a vision or a calling and say, hey, I want you to go reach Africa. Or I want you to go help people who don't ever eat to eat something. Or I want you to share the gospel with a friend that would be really uncomfortable to do. I mean, when you sit in the presence of God, you're opening yourself up to the living God of the universe. And for me, some the reason that's hard to do sometimes is I want to be in control. And if I just sit there in his presence, there is no telling what he will do. You know? It's crazy. Um, secondly, wow. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You know, that was exactly what I was about to say. I might fart in God's presence and I don't want to put myself in that position. Wow. Wow. Are we recording this? I hope that got it in the microphone. Now, it was either Max or Adrian. <laughs> wow. That might have just ruined my whole talk, but that's okay. Wow. Is there any way that I can regain composure here? Should I just give up? Should I just end this thing? It's, hey, I know, I know. Why don't we just say, hey, it was me, guys. It was me. That was me. I take the heat for that. That was me. <laughs> All right. Now, Max, why don't you, can you pray for the rest of this talk here real quick? Just pray, no. Let, let me pray real quick.